Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Come on in. We have a heaping pile of stories to share with you this evening. So take a seat, grab a drink, and get ready to get your spooky on. Because this is Hometown Legends number 8, part 2. Like the first installment of the season 8 finale, the second part is equally as stuffed with terrifying hometown tales. So let's get this thing rolling. Our first submission of the evening comes to us from Jack in the bluegrass state of Kentucky. Here is his hometown legend. Hi, Derek. My name's Jack from Bowling Green, Kentucky. I called in once already with a big black cat story, but I wanted to call in and give you some hometown legends from my area. And so I've been thinking about what I wanted to call in first because I grew up in an area that has a lot of, I guess, supernatural tales, not, you know, so much as actual activity, but lots of stories. Um, So I'm from the Mammoth Cave area in Kentucky, which is a 40-something thousand square foot national park with a really big cave under it. A legend I'm calling in about has to do with the cave, actually. So back in the 20s, there were uh, a lot of families in the area owned many of the caves that are now known to be connected to Mammoth Cave. Uh, But even yet, there are still quite a few caves in the area that do not connect to actual Mammoth Cave. But it was a big tourist area back in that time, and so families would that owned these caves would um, could make a great deal of money, and that could be, you know, how they made their living. This one uh, family, the Collins family, owned several caves, but one cave on their property hadn't been fully explored, and it was called Sand Cave. And so Floyd Collins, long story short, wanted to go in and explore this cave so they could, you know, maybe he was actually looking for a new passage to another cave, I believe. But he blew up part of the cave. Apparently, this was kind of common back in those days when you were exploring to blast sections of a cave so you could get through the smaller part. And this cave was pretty heavily, I guess, made out of sandstone. So it it dislodged quite a bit of material and he went in the next day long story short he basically got trapped by a boulder and they couldn't get him out they they were able to climb down in and you know kind of talk to him and stuff but he he died uh, from exposure to the elements is what they said anyway fast forward to it was a big media sensation too like it was all over the country people came from everywhere 
it was pretty wild for an area that you know with a pretty low population i mean it is rural kentucky so fast forward to many years later and one of the caves that floyd's family operated is now known to be connected to the mammoth cave system it's called crystal cave it's actually not currently open to the public but i think they are going to be opening it soon back in the 70s there were some gentlemen that were exploring the cave and what had happened after floyd died they did manage to get his body out they had to take off part of his leg that was trapped under the boulder and then his body actually kind of was lost several times it was displayed for many years in crystal cave they had him in like a casket with a glass top on it and you know you could see the famous cave explorer floyd collins of course, this is back in the same time that they actually exhibited some of the mummies from Mammoth Cave in the cave. So there were several mummies in there, too, that now, of course, have been reinterred in unopened parts of the cave. Anyway, these two gentlemen that worked for the National Park Service were down in Crystal Cave doing some exploring. And there was a part of the cave that was really deep, but they actually have phone systems in there. So they were way down in this deep part of the cave. And one of the phones began to ring and it was strange because you know this cave isn't open so there's no one else in there with them and this was at the time that Floyd's coffin was still on display so they you know went to this phone they pick it up and there's nothing there it's just like a static or something and so they you know are kind of like what's going on Well, then they got to thinking about it, and these phones were installed in an earlier time, I think maybe the 40s or 50s, and they realized that that particular line was not even in operation. It had been cut, but it was coming from the part of the cave where Floyd's coffin was, so that was a really strange occurrence. I mean, it's pretty commonly told, I think, if you ask about kind of some of the spookier aspects of the cave. But Floyd, they did manage to get his body out at one point, and they interred him in Mammoth Cave Cemetery. It's next to Mammoth Cave Baptist Church. There are several really old churches in the park from when people lived in the area. They're all very similar, just kind of small country churches from the late 19th century. But Floyd's interred there, and um, one thing I know a lot of cavers like to do is they'll leave him little gifts on his tombstone for good luck if they're going on an expedition in the cave. We're talking a cave, you know, a cave that, well, they don't even know how long it is, actually. It is it is the longest cave system in the world, but there's still quite a bit of it that's unexplored. Really narrow passages and even underground streams and stuff that connect it all. But yeah, that's all about Floyd Collins. I've got a few more stories about the Mammoth Cave area. I'll uh, probably call back in and, and tell you some ghosties and stuff like that. But yeah, I really appreciate the podcast. I uh, hope you have a happy Halloween, and congratulations on your recent marriage. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you, Jack. I remember reading about this particular story just a couple of years ago. Coincidentally, Floyd actually died 95 years to the day of the release of this very episode. Tell me that's not synchronicity. It's not. To get a better sense of the sensation around this tragedy, I dug up a 2009 news story covering a failed feature film project by a fairly big Hollywood star. Academy Award winner Billy Bob Thornton has a new passion, to direct and star in a movie about this man, Kentucky cave explorer Floyd Collins. 
Collins entered Sand Cave on January 30th, 1925, and never saw daylight again. Uh, this begins the story of this terrific media event and rescue attempt that went on and occupied the front pages of papers all across the country for a period of two weeks. To understand better what happened to Collins, Beaver Creek author Roger Brucker explored the now off-limits Sand Cave in 1977 and then co-authored the book Trapped, the story of Floyd Collins. It was unstable and very, very scary. I've never been in a scarier cave in my life than Sand Cave where Floyd was trapped. Brucker learned that Sand Cave was an unstable mass of broken down rock and the passage that Collins crawled through that day was a wormhole. A rock shifted trapping Collins' left ankle. The more he struggled to pull this foot out, the more rocks came down around him, packing him in. It was 24 hours before family and friends began searching for Collins, and not much later before the press arrived. That included a reporter from the Louisville Courier-Journal named Skeets Miller, who was brave enough and small enough to crawl 50 feet below the earth to interview Collins. That meeting was reenacted in this 1999 docudrama. And instead of, like, face-to-face, -face, he's literally upside down? That's right, and this made the working conditions just terrible. I don't know how you'd do an interview in that position. But for the next two weeks, Miller continued to interview Collins, agonizing with him as the rescue efforts became more hopeless and telling his Pulitzer Prize-winning story to the world. But he was so effective at communicating the emotional tenor of the uh, conflict that it captured the imagination of everybody and shot it to the number one story all over the country. In fact, the Floyd Collins story became the first great media spectacle of the 20th century. The new technologies of wire photos and radio broadcasting were just emerging. Daily newspapers competed fiercely. And with that hunger for breaking news came errors. Several times, rumors circulated that Floyd had been rescued. A collapse cut off the tunnel that Skeets had used to reach Floyd, when rescuers finally dug a shaft 17 days after Floyd became trapped, they found him dead. Once we had been in the cave and surveyed it and knew the situation, it was clear to us that some of these people were telling the truth. Some of them were just flat lying, and some were exaggerating. 81 years later, the story is still powerful, perfect for Hollywood, and somehow remains as fresh as the recent Sago mine collapse. The same drama, the same curiosity, the same blunders. This were to occur today, I'm not sure the cavers could get such a victim out of the cave. That clip comes courtesy of WRGT, ABC News 22, out of Dayton, Ohio. I contemplated playing an older clip, a clip from the actual time of Floyd's ordeal, but opted for this newer, more detailed news story. I've linked to both in tonight's show notes, so check those out if that's something you'd like to see film footage of. I've linked to both in tonight's show notes, so check out that older clip if you'd like to see film footage from the site itself. And wouldn't you believe it, just like Mark's story about the ghost of Bardsley Road on Part 1, this submission, too, has a song attached to it. The following is Red River Dave's 1944 ditty entitled Death of Floyd Collins. Now I see the in a lonely sandstone cave. 
A big thank you to Jack for sending that submission in. I was hoping that I'd hear about this story at some point in a Hometown Legends episode. I can tell you, I wasn't disappointed. Our next tantalizing tale takes us to the state of Utah. The following is Colby's Call from the Beehive State. Hey Derek, my name is Colby. I'm originally from North Carolina. I just moved down to Utah because I'm getting married. So I moved down here to do that. Um, So I'm calling from Utah. But what I want to share today is something that I guess you'd use for a hometown legend or international legend or something like that. Um, I served a two-year mission for the Church of Jesus Christ, and I was in Estonia, which is one of the Baltic states in Eastern Europe, Um, so I was there for two years, and there was an interesting legend or folk tale that a lot of people told me about um, as I was there, and it was, it's called a crot, or a bunch of crotties, is the plural. And these little things are little creatures that people like farmers or really anyone in Estonia would make out of hay and out of, you know, household materials that they would have at the farm, whether that's tools or bands of metal or hay or whatever it is. And these little creatures, and were brought to life because the owner would give three drops of blood to the devil or a demon and this thing would be brought to life and its sole purpose was to do whatever task the owner gave to it and so for a lot of farmers and things like that this was a very valuable thing Um, unfortunately it said that a lot of people used it wrongly and it would steal things from other people and Um, It was really small and sneaky and could fly around, and so really no one could could catch it. It was just a perfect little henchman, I guess. And the thing was, in order to make sure it wasn't dangerous, it always had to be doing something. If it didn't have a task, it would turn dangerous, and it would try to kill its owner that brought it to life. And so the only way to get rid of a croc was give it some impossible task to do Um, a lot of times it was said to be like fill up a bucket of water with a hole in it or to build a ladder out of a loaf of bread and things like that Um, these tasks would be so impossible that it would burst into flames because it couldn't accomplish it and it would just get stressed and so it would burst into flames and just you know incinerate in this little ball of fire And uh, it's interesting because old Estonian astronomers, um, there's something called a bolide. I think that's how you say it. Um, I had to look up what the word was in English. But there's something called a bolide in astronomy. And all it is is a really, really bright meteor, I guess. And that's how Estonian astrologers used to make sense of that was... uh, a, 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 uh, a crot that was just given an impossible task turned into a ball of fire and incinerated and that's what they said a bolide was um, so that's kind of where this legend stems from um, 
And I've never really, you know, met anyone that tried to do this or anything like that while I was there for those two years. But I thought it was an interesting story. Um, and it turns out these things might be a little more real in our day than they used to be. Um, right now in Estonia, there's laws about about these things because what they're saying is artificial intelligence and things like that are kind of turning into the same kind of creatures that was said to be created in the folklore there. And so they've got all these laws about artificial intelligence that they call Karat laws. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they take this old folk tale and that it's kind of real in our day with, with all this technology that we have and uh, that's kind of interesting. Anyways, um, I've got a couple more stories to tell, especially from Estonia, um, that I've experienced and stuff, but I wanted to get you that one, see if you can use it at all. I really love your show. Uh, keep up the good work, and I will call in soon. Thank you. Thanks, Colby. You know, I wonder if I might be one of these crots. Because I swear people have been giving me impossible tasks most of my life. In all seriousness, I've actually never heard of these little creatures. But I find it fascinating that their belief in these little creatures is having a negative effect on Estonian technical advancement. I just find that very interesting. So thank you again, Colby, for sharing that call. And like I said on the last episode, stories from foreign lands really pique my interest. Mostly because the information is not only new and exciting to the listeners, but new and exciting to me as well. Speaking of submissions, if you have a story you'd like to share, call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or you can visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com and click on the Report Your Sightings tab for more submission options. And if you're overseas or out of the country and would like to submit but aren't so keen on those long-distance charges, you can just record your story on your phone or computer and email that file to me at mauwrittensubmission at gmail.com. That's mauwrittensubmission at gmail.com. I'll take care of the rest. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a caller from Detroit that noted that we've been short on Michigan submissions lately. Well, I promise that's not because I'm a Buckeye. In fact, I've been trying to improve that percentage lately. And Jen's story from that state up north might help the average. This is her hometown legend. Hi, Derek. My name is Jen, and I'm from Michigan. I listen to your podcast all the time, and you were saying that people from Michigan don't really call in too much for the hometown legends. Probably in the early 90s in Michigan, there's a city called Pontiac, and there's a road that runs through Pontiac, and it's just a, a pretty long road. And back in the 90s, it wasn't as built up as it is today. Some of it was woods. I was probably about 16 because I remember I had my first car that was just a big piece of junk. And um, we had heard, we meaning like just, you know, like rumor and stuff around school and whatever, that if you drive down Scripps Road at night and you pass a monastery, that monks will come out and chase you. 
And I remember like before I ever even turned 16, this was like just a, you know, a huge, like everybody knew this around Pontiac and Waterford and, you know, it's about an hour north of Detroit. So that's, that's where I'm actually talking about. So I had always looked forward to like the day I could go out to Scripps Road because it just sounded so exciting. But I didn't believe it. I mean, that just sounds weird. Like, why would monks come out and chase your car? Like, that's just weird. <laughs> One night I had the opportunity and I I wasn't going to go alone. Um, I had some friends. I don't really remember who they were. I, I never had like a lot of close friends growing up. It was just like people I'd hang out with for like a little while and, you know, go our separate ways. So, but I do remember that the car was full of girls. It was me and like maybe two or three other girls. We got the guts to go out to Scripps Road. I was driving and my car stalled out a lot, but it was dark out. It was probably like one or two in the morning. And I think it was like a light rain, if I remember correctly. So I'm going down Scripps Road. I had never been this far down Scripps Road before. And it kind of like turned into dirt. And then it turned into like almost like a land bridge that was a one lane. Like you couldn't turn around or anything. It was all swampy and stuff around it. And I remember thinking as we went over it, it wasn't even a bridge. It was just land that, you know, it was real. It was just low laying land with swamp around it. So I remember thinking as we went across this, I was like, I sure hope this isn't true that the monks come out and chase you because I don't think I can get my car to turn around on this little slit of land. So right after that, because we didn't really know where the monastery was or anything. We just kept going until, you know, something happened. So we're going real slow, you know, because it's night, it's dirt road, and we're looking for the monastery, and now we're going across this swampy land bridge. So as soon as we get out of that land bridge, there's a, a clearing, and then there's a building on the left. It's like a long building. It, it was dark. I couldn't really see really and you know everybody in the car was like there it is there it is we stopped and we were just looking at it and we were waiting for the monks to come out and all of a sudden like you could see like this figure and we were like is that is that a monk <laughs> we, because we were all we just couldn't believe that this story could be true so we just thought you know it was just somebody outside the building or something until it started like running at us and it was in a long flowy-ish not like super flowy or anything but just like yeah like a robe and it started running towards us and I couldn't turn around because the land bridge was we had just crossed that land bridge thing where it was one lane even though now it was two lanes I don't remember why we didn't continue to go forward I don't remember if it dead ended or we were scared, I think we were just scared to keep going. I think that's what it was. But I remember my worst nightmare of the night had come true because I had to put this clunker in reverse and hope to God that it didn't stall out when I was going in reverse across this land bridge, being a brand new driver with a monk chasing the car, which I wasn't going very fast, but it was a long distance from the building because it was kind of on a hill. 
until, you know, until the monk or whatever it was got to our car. So I threw it in reverse, and in my panic, I fight or flight kicked in, I guess, and I reversed perfectly back down this uh, land bridge thing without ditching it in the swamp. But I remember the girls, because I was, you know, looking behind me most of the time trying to get get us away, but the girls said that the monk came right in front of the car and put his hands, like, on the hood. And I do vaguely remember seeing something, like, you know, on the left side of my hood where the the driver's side would be. The monk, like, ran all the way down the hill and put his hands on my car, but my car was moving by then. But then there was another one behind him. There was another monk or something behind him running, too. So And we saw that, too. So that was just a freaky... You know, obviously we were scared they were going to keep chasing us, but they basically just chased us until we put the car in reverse and started getting out of there. So, yeah, that was just, it's a weird story, but I just wonder if anybody remembers it from Pontiac or Waterford. Well, thank you for making your podcast. It's awesome, and have a good one. Thank you, Jen, for sharing. I really love that Jen referenced the same call that I did. Call to action heard and met, good sir. I hope he's still out there listening somewhere. You know, when I first came up with the idea of Hometown Legends, I thought I'd get a lot of submissions that were more educational than anything else. I thought I'd get a lot of vague submissions about such and such place, or or if you do this random action, blank will emerge. Little did I know that a lot of these submissions come with first-hand experiences, and Jen's submission is no different. Now, as far as the story... The only thing I can think is that the building is used for some sort of ritual. Perhaps the Masons, or a local fraternity, or something like that. And if they happen to be there when you arrive, they would probably do their best to scare someone off. But that requires a lot of coincidence. And I doubt that's what took place here. Maybe someone listening can shed a little more light on this particular mystery. Until then, thank you again, Jen, for taking the time to share. Now for our next submission of the evening. I'm going to toss out there a story involving one of my favorite paranormal occurrences. The following is Rachel's Call from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hi, Derek. This is Rachel. I know that you're looking for local legends, so I figured I would call in with my own. My hometown is barely on the map, so I'll just go ahead and say the whole county, since it's big anyway. I come from Southampton County, Virginia. There's a lot of weird things. It's a very old area. Honestly, some of it has been settled right around the same time as Jamestown. So a lot of really cool stuff out there, even though there's barely anything actually out there. But uh, there's one legend that I've heard throughout my entire life. And basically, it's the ghost or even spook lights on this stretch of railroad track right around Back Creek area in Southampton County. Um, Fortunately, that stretch of railroad is no longer there. Uh, Apparently, it pulled up at around the 70s or 80s and completely dismantled and everything was just gone. So now it's really just wildlife. And I had heard that after they pulled it up, people still went out there trying to see if they could see the lights but apparently they never showed up. 
But my dad did get to see them, and of course, he was around during that time, so he was able to tell me a lot of really cool stories. Basically, there was three lights. There was a red one, a blue one, and a yellow one. Apparently, the red one was the most active. It would fly around people if they went on the railroad tracks. Apparently, at least once they ran through someone's leg. There was a kind of a community nearby the area, and every now and then, people would be sitting on their porch, and they would see that red light actually coming into town. And at least on one occasion, it would like kind of hang out on the porch. And I heard that someone actually saw the red light through their screen door and got so scared that they actually shot through the screen door at it. Of course, it didn't actually hurt it or anything, and it just kind of fluttered back to the railroad but it was a constant problem for the people out there and they were terrified of it. I don't really know why. To me, it seems kind of fun and kind of mischievous. But yeah, apparently that one was seen a lot and it was really big. My dad said it was about the same size as like those huge blocks of round cheese. And he said he knew it wasn't a headlight because one, people would get up and close to it. And two, because he said that, you know, headlights have little points of light coming out from them and you can kind of tell and they usually stick to a road. Well, one, there really isn't any road out there. It's just the railroad track. And two, he said that these lights were purely round, like didn't have any kind of points coming out of it. It was just a pure round ball of light. And he also said there was a blue one. This one was smaller than the red one. Wasn't seen quite as often, but was like the next most often seen. And uh, it would just kind of play around, usually fly up into the trees and just kind of stay in its area it didn't like going out anywhere and he also said there was a yellow one that was also pretty big not as big as the red one but still pretty big in itself but that one was rarely seen so he said that he went out at least once my mom he went with my mom and my mom is not an outdoors person so she refused to go much further than just a couple hundred yards down the railroad track in the first place but uh his brother went further down and you know he saw the red light moving all around and my dad could still see it even though it was still kind of far away and he said he saw it shoot straight up to the tree line and just kind of play around the tree line and then just disappear like somewhere else apparently the red one would even chase trains as they were going up and down the best guess that they have of who these people could be, if they even are people, they think that they could be a group of German workers that worked on the railroad during the time it was being set, probably after the Civil War, before World War One, And they died and they were buried somewhere under or next to that area of the train tracks. That's all anybody could really figure out. We don't know if that's really them or not, but that's just the local legend for it. Anyway, that's pretty much it. Fortunately, of course, as I said, they're no longer there. I always wanted to go see them, but no one's seen any sign of them now for about 30 years. So thought you would enjoy that, but uh, thank you for giving me a chance to call in. Great. Bye. Thank you, Rachel, for the call. Like I said, I love spook lights. There's even a spook light at the center of David Flora and I's upcoming documentary. A quick update on that, by the way. We're currently editing a teaser trailer and expect to announce the Kickstarter campaign fairly soon. Anyone that's ever worked on a film knows that these things can move incredibly slowly, especially when it's a side passion project. Anyhow, back to the spook lights. I know I discussed these particular spook lights way back in Season 2, but I stumbled upon an interesting first-hand encounter from a witness of the infamous Brown Mountain Lights in North Carolina, and I thought, I just have to share this. So the following is courtesy of Discover Burke County. 
and here is that story. My name's Steve Woody, and I've seen the Brown Mountain Lights. When I was growing up as a kid in Burke County, my mom and dad would never let me stay out of school, except when I got to go hunting one day a year with my dad on Brown Mountain. So that leads me to the story in 1961, when my dad and I were on top of the mountain and experienced the, experienced the lights close up and at hand. We were there very early on a, a November morning. It was uh, in the 20s and sleeting very hard. And the reason we were there so early is my dad and his brother were very successful at deer hunting early on. There wasn't many deer in the Western North Carolina at that time. And there were people who uh, actually camped at the base of the mountain. And as they came out each year with these deer uh, draped across the hood of their vehicle, you might say, the following years they started following them up the mountain. So we would leave home at 3 or 3.30 in the morning to get there very early before they ever got up out of bed. So that puts us on the top of Brown Mountain on the very back side at approximately 4.30 in the morning. Again, very cold and sleeting very hard. As we were sitting there in the warm truck, uh, killing time, waiting for time to go down into our hunting area, uh, my dad said to me, I guess we didn't leave early enough. And I replied, why is that? He said, I see headlights coming up the mountain. And so as I turned to look out the back window of the truck, he immediately replied, uh, I don't know what that is, but it's not a vehicle because there's no way a vehicle could be in the area where those lights are. There were two lights, and you could see that they illuminated quite a large area around them. And as they came closer to us, it was a very calming, very uh, unusual experience. Uh, neither of us were alarmed. Uh, neither of us spoke. But uh, when we first saw the lights, they were approximately seven to 800 yards away. And at the closest point, about 50 yards. So we got to experience several minutes of these lights. They looked like they were definitely traveling somewhere. They were traveling together, but independently. Uh, they were approximately four to six feet in diameter, perfectly symmetrical, and had a three-dimensional effect to them. They put off a very soft and pleasing orange light, and they traveled 12 to 15 feet off the ground, and they would actually float and move independently. Uh, they approached us right to left in a diagonal pattern, and as they came across in front of us, the first uh, light, which was further away, actually went down over the edge of the gorge, and as it went down to the gorge, of course it lit up the top of the trees and then cast a shadow behind it, and shortly thereafter the second one followed suit. And again, it was about 50 yards in front of us when, uh, when it disappeared going down over the, the gorge cliff and down the face of the incline there, actually in the area where we were going to go hunting. Uh, we sat there for a few minutes and my dad said to me, what do you think of that? And I replied, I don't know, what do you think? And he immediately said, I think we've been in the woods with the brown mountain lights. So uh, we went on to, to hunt about, about an hour later and uh, really didn't see any deer that day. But uh, what we received that day was a lot better than harvesting a deer. So I was happy that I got to experience this situation. I've never met anyone who actually has been in the woods with them, but I can tell you, it's as vivid in my mind today as it was in 1961. These particular spook lights are high on my list of places I'm dying to visit. So one of these days, I'll finally make it back that way. Oh, and I should point out, there are several songs about the Brown Mountain Lights, but I'll let you do your own Google search for those. Thank you again, Rachel, for taking the time to share that story. Now, I happen to have another Spooklight hometown legend, so I figured why not make a nice little Brown Mountain Lights sandwich. 
The following is Evan's submission out of the state of Indiana. Yeah, hello, Derek. My name is Evan. I had emailed an experience I had back in college about a ghost I'd seen. Well, I just wanted to call and say that this evening on November the 6th at 6.30 p.m., I have experienced a second uh, ghost sighting. I live in small town Indiana, and one of our popular hometown legends is called Spooklight Hill. Short version is that many years ago, a farmer was waiting for his daughter to return home from a church social. It was getting late, and she still wasn't home, so he had decided to wait up for her. Finally, he saw uh, her horse and buggy coming back to the road. So he goes out to help get her in because it was raining. And to the guy's horror, he saw that she had, was not in the buggy. So he t- grabbed a lantern and went out searching for her. He found her body, but uh, tragically she had fallen out and the wheel of the buggy had somehow managed to decapitate her. And the strange part of the story is that her head was never found. So many years later, people say that if you go out on this gravel road at night and you park at the bottom of the hill and you flash your headlights three times, you'll see this ball of light suddenly appear and move back and forth that looks like it's searching for something. So tonight, a friend and I went out testing to see if this would work. And we get to the road. It was a light drizzle. And as we're driving up the road, all of a sudden, uh, my friend goes, hey, what's that? And I just happen to look ahead of us and I see a single ball of light just suddenly appear about, I'd say maybe a quarter mile, a quarter to half mile up the road from where we were. Now this is a gravel road in the middle of nowhere and it's a straight road there's no turnoffs so i know that it wasn't a car because i continued driving straight down the road after the light disappeared and there were no cars ever passed us and there are houses along this road but i was looking as i was driving past and there was no like you know outside security lights or porch lights or anything like that now i'd say this ball of light was not waist high, but probably about the height of a, I'd say probably about a, you know, average size man. It kind of looks like it would if if an adult male was holding a lantern over, up over his head searching. Now, unfortunately I didn't get a picture because I was, you know, just driving towards it. But it just stayed there for, I'd say, maybe about a couple minutes. And we drove down a hill. And then as we were coming up the hill, right where we had seen it earlier, it was already gone. And the road is close to the highway, but it's still probably about a mile and a half to the main highway. So I don't think that it was just uh, headlights from a passing car. And uh, the the most telling thing for me was... There was only a single ball instead of two. So that's pretty much my sighting. I love the show. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Thanks, Evan.
There's actually a video floating around that appears to show something very similar to what Evan is reporting. The video showed a ball of light or energy that was blue in color with bolts of electricity emanating from it. The light was filmed crossing a set of railroad tracks. The video was suggested to be a spook light, UFO, ball lightning, and even something called a globular bolt. I guess that's some sort of lightning. Well, I'm sure you've seen the video. It's been floating around for weeks. If you haven't, check out the show notes. But I'm here to tell you that that video is a proven hoax, or at the very least, a fake. The video was created by a man named Andre Trakonovitz. Sorry to disappoint. And of course, that doesn't mean that Rachel, Steve, or Evan's stories aren't genuine. They're certainly not the first nor the last to see this awe-inspiring spectacle. So thank you again for sharing those stories. Would you believe we are halfway finished with this episode? But fear not, because there's one more part still to come. And a pledge of one or four dollars can catch you that episode a week from tonight. February 20th on Patreon, the third installment of Hometown Legends will drop. So simply visit patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us podcast. Make your pledge and you'll be ready to go. Now our next tale of the evening may sound familiar. I know the location was discussed on a past episode, but this one comes with a first-hand encounter that I thought we should at least discuss. The following is John's call from the state of California. Hey, my name is John. Just calling in. Uh, my sister turned me on to the podcast and haven't stopped listening. I have a story for you, but it takes place in um, Southern California. I grew up in uh, your Belinda area, so Orange County. This must have been in 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. I was about 15. Me and my friends heard about this uh, canyon called Black Star Canyon. It's down there, and it's supposed to be very, very haunted and paranormal. So we went and checked it out one day. And I remember going up these dirt roads and just kind of getting lost. We were all in the car. There was about five of us, probably about midnight. So we were just kind of scaring each other, pumping each other up. And then we get to this big chain link fence. And it has a bunch of signs in it. And so we're sitting there debating whether we should get out and go hike through it or not. While we're all sitting there, we put the car in park. And then one of my friends who was in the front seat starts pointing out that there is a... Uh, person walking out of the gated area and i remember we all just kind of sat there and stared because we thought we were going to get kicked out on this chain link fence i should add that there's a bunch of signs that say you know do not enter private property that kind of stuff so he uh ends up walking through the fence and right into our car headlights and i just remember there was no color there was no definitive clothing or anything it just looked like the shadow of a person in the headlights with no person standing there. And it was all reflecting off of the signs that were in the back. So we were all sitting there in silence, just kind of like blown away of what we're seeing. And finally the driver just threw the car in reverse and we got out of there. But I just remember that whole area having just a bunch of crazy stories that go along with it. Like there was supposedly a satanic church in the middle of the canyon and there's a bunch of other uh stories that a couple of my friends and my sister went over and they saw some crazy stuff too i'll try to get her to call in but uh yeah hopefully you can use this thank you thank you john 
I said this last time I shared a call about Black Star Canyon, but I really need to get over there. I just googled it and it's a mere hour and a half from here, so I might just make a visit to that place sooner rather than later. I think it's important to remember that public hiking trails, especially in Southern California, attract all sorts of people. The homeless often set up camp just off trail. Drug users frequent these areas as well, so seeing someone strange late at night might not be all that odd, especially given if that person is impaired or mentally ill in any way. That could certainly explain any erratic behavior. No, I'm not saying that's what happened with John, but I'm simply suggesting that it might be something that occurs there frequently. Hopefully soon I can get some boots on the ground and make that determination myself. Thank you again, John, for taking the time to share that story. Now, last week I shared a story about a tragic train wreck that took the lives of dozens of circus performers. Well, not to be outdone, Chris from the state of North Carolina has something very similar he'd like to share. The following is his story. Hey, Derek. This is Chris calling from Lumberton, North Carolina, and I'm calling for the Hometown Legends podcast. Um, this story is about the worst train wreck in North Carolina history. Um, and this happened about maybe 10 miles outside of town. But on December the, excuse me, December the 17th, 1943, um, it was around 1230, one o'clock in the morning. It was an extremely cold and snowy evening. There was a southbound train that was heading to Florida that the last three car rails uh, derailed and even though they stayed upright they had landed on the northbound lane uh, when, the, when the train finally stopped the brake man went and evacuated the three cars and the conductor had asked the fireman to head south yeah head southbound to keep any northbound trains from coming up by flagging them down and letting them know that there was an accident there but what they didn't know is on their heels was a northbound train heading from Florida to New York. And as the fireman noticed the headlights from that northbound train coming, he tried to light the fusee, and he actually slipped on a patch of ice. He fell, broke the fusee, and was unable to light the warning light. And he tried to wave the train down, but the conductor didn't see him waving. By the time the conductor saw the derailed train on his track, it was too late, and the northbound train slammed into the derailed cars. Uh, the accident actually caused uh, 79 deaths. Uh, 47 of those were soldiers that were heading from Florida to New York. They were heading home for the holidays. Uh, reports stated that uh, the crash site was littered with body parts and wrapped Christmas gifts all around. Um, and as of today, the train track's still there. We have uh, passenger trains and industrial trains using both rails. But the people that live in that area currently, they have stated that in the past, that around in December, around 12.30, 1 o'clock at night, especially on the cold nights of December, they can hear from a distance the sound of metal crunching, metal scraping against metal, and from the distance they can hear the screams of people. 
um, even though no wrecks or any of that is happening, uh, they're actually hearing the ghostly sounds of the wreck that happened in the past. Um, I sure hope you can use this. Uh, love your podcast and keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. All this talk of North Carolina train disasters reminds me of a tragedy involving a 129-year-old train crash, a ghost train, and a pair of ghost hunters. The following clip comes courtesy of WBTV, CBS News 3, out of Charlotte, North Carolina. One man is dead, a woman in the hospital after they were struck by what they thought was a ghost train. Happened this morning at the Boston's Bridge Railroad Trestle west of Statesville. A group of amateur ghost hunters were on the trestle when they were surprised by a Norfolk Southern freight train. 29-year-old Christopher Kaiser of Charlotte was hit by the train and plunged to his death in the ravine below. An unidentified woman who also fell is now at Carolina's Medical Center. This was in the middle of the night. They didn't hear it and still was able to cover the distance and be able to hit one of the individuals, causing his death just by being on the tracks. The group was checking out a legend that ghosts from an 1891 train wreck appear each year on the anniversary of the accident. For more on the twisted history of the Boston's Bridge train and the search for the paranormal, we turn to Primetime's Jeff Atkinson. And Jeff, just like the X-Files, the truth is out there. Jamie, there is growing interest in ghost hunting. What with the proliferation of TV shows on cable and with the Internet, what is the legend of the Boston's Bridge train disaster in 1891? And how do people who take this seriously investigate? It's tonight's cover story. She heads a group known as the Charlotte Area Paranormal Society, and Tina McSwain's license plate leaves no doubt what she does. She's a ghost hunter. Seriously. And we research and investigate reports of paranormal activity. The group's been around for five years. During that time, they say, they've assisted more than 80 homes and businesses try to explain what can't be explained. What is our fascination in the subject? It goes back to the question of, you know, life after death. Is there life after death? Can you prove it? Are ghosts proof of life after death? The story of Boston's Bridge, it stands today as it did more than a century ago, goes back to 1891, early morning hours of August 27th. Westbound number 9 passenger train hit the bridge and plunged into Third Creek. 22 were killed, scores injured. It was on the 50th anniversary in 1941 when the ghost stories started coming out of the woodwork. A Columbia, South Carolina woman claimed to have seen an identical train wreck on that day. Historian Larry Neal says no evidence was found, but that didn't matter. The legend was born. Maybe it's just trying to be a connection to the past where you're trying to relive or, or experience something that happened in the past that because of when you were born you would never be able to experience yourself. Dozens of people flock to the bridge every year like they did this morning to see the train that's supposed to appear on the anniversary. Now with a man's death on the tracks this morning, the story takes on a new life, according to paranormal author Jeff Bellinger. This person became a permanent part of the story. This person is now intertwined with that legend forever. People will be going there, I imagine now, in great numbers. Those who call themselves professionals haven't been able to detect anything. Although Tina McSwain did experience something unusual with candles on one anniversary. It was a very humid night, no wind was moving, and at exactly 4 a.m., the candles blew out. Big gust of wind acted like it came down the track. That's the extent of what we, you know, what we discovered. Hmm. 
Boston's bridge is on a Norfolk Southern Railroad line that runs west of Statesville towards Asheville on a busy corridor. There's a bend in the tracks near the side of the bridge, and it caught today's amateur ghost hunters by surprise. Obviously very sad with the loss of life. Is this being ruled an accident right now? That's what the Ardell Sheriff's Office is saying at this point, Jamie. They were on the tracks, and they should not have been. Professional ghost hunters, those who take this seriously, wisely point out to us that they do not trespass, and they act responsible mm. and professional at all times. We all hear bumps in the night, and we wonder what they are, mm. and as um, Interesting tale and a sad end to it today. Thank you, Jeff. This is certainly reminiscent of the Pope Lick, Kentucky tragedy from a few years back. You may remember that a young Ohio woman was struck and killed while searching for the infamous goat man of the Pope Lick Trussell. Now this is a perfect reminder to us weirdos that these places we investigate can be dangerous. Searching in public places or locations where you have permission is the only real way to avoid a nightmare scenario like this. So please, be careful out there. Thank you again, Chris, for sharing your tale. Our subsequent story of the evening sends us north to the state of Maryland. The following is Danny's call. Hi, Derek. I'm calling in for your uh, Hometown Legends episode. This is Danny from St. Michael's, Maryland. But my sighting, actually, uh, or my, my legend, takes place in the next town over where I work, Easton, Maryland. It's a small, historic town, beautiful place, but a lot of Victorian-era and colonial-era houses. And, uh, yeah, so the legend is this um, old house. It's an old brick house called the uh, Foxley Manor. Supposedly, it was built, I believe, in the early 1800s, possibly a little bit earlier, by the Tillmans, which were a, a really famous family around here, very wealthy. And their claim to fame for this house was they, there was a disfigured son in that family, and they kept him chained up in the attic. I don't know how much there really is to back that up, but that's the story that's always been told around, and it's supposedly his ghost that kind of haunts the place, and there's all kinds of wacky stuff that happens in there. People seeing full-bodied apparitions and stuff missing and floating around and all kinds of crazy stuff. But I actually just had an experience right outside of there, I think. It's Halloween night, and my girlfriend and I decided it would be a cool idea to walk around Easton and check out all the local haunted spots. So it's been blowing all night. Right now it's kind of stormy, so it's a dark and stormy Halloween night. But earlier it wasn't raining, so it was perfect to walk around. But there weren't a whole lot of people out like I thought there would be. We really didn't cross paths with more than no more than 10 people. So we're making our rounds through the town, and then I was telling her, okay, let's, let's go close this off, right? Let's go see Foxley Manor. So we're walking down the side streets to get there, and we noticed up ahead of us there's this couple that were pushing a baby stroller and they were walking fairly slow so we kind of caught up to them right as we were getting to Foxley Manor um, and the closer we got we realized they were kind of dressed in period clothing like Victorian era style suit and the woman was wearing this white dress and the baby carriage looked kind of old so we were thinking oh that's so cool they must be you know must have gone to some kind of Halloween party somewhere and were dressed up like that so we kind of went on about our business and I was telling her about the history of the place and how the kid was supposedly chained up in the attic and everything and we were probably a good 15 feet behind these people and we walked around the side of the house and they happened to be in front of us well they turned the corner to walk into the backyard and I was like oh my gosh they must be the people that own it I've never actually met them 
And so as we caught up to where they were and turned right, there's actually a gate right there and it was shut. And from what I could tell, it was locked. And those people were nowhere to be found, almost like they had just walked right on through. We never heard them open a gate and close it. We never, it was, and it happened so quick. I don't think there's any way that we would have missed them walking into that backyard. It's it's the strangest thing. And we both just kind of looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, like what happened? She doesn't really believe in a lot of that kind of stuff. And I'm as skeptical as can be, but I just, I don't see any other way around it. it I would love to believe that's that was the owners of the house, you know, way back when the, the Tillmans. It was a really odd experience. You know, I just felt like I had to share it and it happened to line up perfectly with one of the most haunted places in Easton. So I'm kind of really excited about it. Can't wait to tell everybody about it tomorrow, my family. Yeah, love the show. Love what you're doing. Thank you for all the wonderful podcasting. And I hope to call back with more stories. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Danny. How about that? Not only do we get a legend, but we also get a personal experience. And it was reported the same day as the call. The mention of the disabled son chained up reminds me of one of my favorite films, The Goonies. Although I doubt the situation in Danny's call was nearly as playful as that film. Sadly, that was often the practice back in the day. They simply didn't know how to care for the mentally and physically disabled. It's very tragic. Thanks again, Danny, for taking the time to share that call. And I know you mentioned it, but I think it bears repeating. You should always question anything quote-unquote paranormal that you see around Halloween. Technology these days can easily fool us all, especially when we already have spooky on the brain. Last week, I mentioned that I was the guest on the brand new series, Stories with Sapphire. Well, guess what, guys? That episode dropped yesterday, so you can head over to your favorite podcatcher and find that episode. Again, that's Stories with Sapphire, and I believe my episode is called Coincidence. Now, before we get into our last few calls of the evening, I need to announce that I will be taking my usual short break between seasons. So in the meantime, you can catch me on Paranormal Caught on Camera on the Travel Channel every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. And of course, if you're still jonesing, like I just said, I did an interview with Sapphire Sundalo and was recently on Hillbilly Horror Stories as well. So go check those out in the meantime. And that's going to bring us to our final call of the evening. The following is one of the weirdest things I've seen in quite a while. This is Josh's submission from the state of Kentucky. Hi, hey, Derek. My name is Josh. I'm from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Big fan of the show. I think you do a great job with everything. And it's a really cool way for people to share their stories. And I just, I, I think you do a great job with everything. I have a few stories. <clears throat> I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, but I grew up in Bardstown, Kentucky, which is a um, pretty historical small town about 45 minutes south of Louisville. Uh, tons of ghost-related things happen there all the time. Bardstown's kind of known for being haunted in that regard, so I'll call back with a few more stories pertaining to certain events in the town itself and also my grandfather's house. It was built in 1845. It was used as a neutral field hospital during the Civil War. 
And I have tons of ghost stories about that house that I could share with you, too. But the reason why I'm calling today is because uh, right on the outskirts of Bardstown, kind of uh, in a smaller community, still in Nelson County, there's a local legend about what's called the donkey tree. And you can look up on YouTube plenty of videos or, uh, you know, you can look on pictures for the donkey tree, uh, Nelson County, Kentucky. But basically, the the legend goes there is an old farmer that was abusive towards all things in his life, his wife, his kids, he had young slaves, and one of his slaves took care of a mule, a donkey, and this donkey was old and it was sick all the time, and one day this farmer just was fed up with everything, killed the slave out of rage for something that had happened. I'm not exactly sure the logistics of what supposedly happened that day, but then he tied the old donkey to a tree where legend has it that it died, you know, exposure to the elements, <clears throat> starvation, and eventually this tree became cursed by the spirit of the slave that took care of the donkey, and the tree eventually grew to the shape of a donkey-like animal. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, but if you look up pictures or things on YouTube, it, it's along the back road over a cover. It's past like a covered bridge down on the outskirts of Bardstown, uh, on the outskirts of this property. And people, like in high school, we would all drive out there late at night to go see it because it's, it's kind of a spooky thing to see with the local legend because the legend goes that if you touch the donkey tree, you basically sign your own death warrant. Like you have only so, like your death will come for you now. Um, kind of weird curse, I guess, but to be fair, may just be circumstances, everyone I've ever known to have touched it has either died or, or really horrible circumstances, including deaths in their family or deaths close to them have happened to them. I used to go out there all the time or take people out there all the time. I even took a few dates out there when I was in high school just to kind of have something fun to do around Halloween time in a small town where... There's nothing really to do except to go to Walmart or to a movie or field parties. Yeah, the donkey tree, man. Check it out. Then you can find stuff on YouTube about it. There's plenty of scary local legends that kind of... The core legend of the slave owner farmer guy that tied the donkey to the tree is like the core element of the story. But there's several other retellings and repurposing of the story that I can't quite remember at this point. They're, they're pretty good, too. But yeah, keep doing what you're doing, man. You're doing a great job. Appreciate everything you do, and uh, talk to you later. Thank you, Josh. You guys have got to see this. Do it now. Go to the show notes or do a Google search for Donkey Tree. It legit looks like a donkey. Don't Google that if you're driving. In fact, don't ever touch your phone if you're driving. Life is extremely fragile. And I can tell you, I can't afford to lose any listeners. Anyway... I'm getting a bit off track. I was super curious about this donkey tree, so I reached out to one of my paranormal hookups in the state of Kentucky to get some more information on this gnarly tree. Hello, Monsters Among Us fans. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We're from Hillbilly Horror Stories, and we wanted to chime in on the legend of the donkey tree since we are also from Kentucky. Well, where's this donkey tree? Well... As Josh said in his story, there are a few different variations of the story, as it is usually is the case when it comes to yeah. these, you know, folklores or, or urban legends. And here's one of the stories. The donkey tree is close to Springfield, Kentucky, which is extremely close to Bardstown, Kentucky, which is where 
most of the world's bourbon is made and stored. And that may have something to do with some of these stories <laughs> that come out about the donkey tree. So the, the version we're going to tell you says that there was a very cruel farmer and he would regularly beat his donkey. He had a bunch of animals and stuff, but this one particular donkey Not he would get cool. frustrated with. Not no. cool. So one day he went at it extremely hard and he beat the donkey to death. Whatever. On that very spot where the donkey died, this tree sprouted up and is now known as the donkey tree because of its odd shape. And it actually does kind of look like a donkey. Uh, everyone in the area believes that the tree is cursed. Local legend says that anyone who touches the tree will have bad luck, such as being in a, a car accident or possibly even worse, death. There is an alternative, though. It's also said that if you approach the tree and you put an apple in a donkey's mouth, that you will have good luck. There is a trick to this, though. You have to put the apple in its mouth and then just leave. You can't just hang around. It's said that when you come back, that the apple will be gone. How long? It didn't tell me that. Oh, just curious. So, I would, I would, I would use like a five-minute rule just to be safe. Okay. And I have nothing to base that on. The Donkey Tree, believe it or not, has its own Facebook page. Yes. And people report stuff on this page, such as the fact that one one uh, poster said that they hear children laughing and crying right near the tree. And it's usually between the hours of 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. Another poster said that in 2015, a car was found in front of the tree. And supposedly the car belonged to a YouTuber from Indiana who was there shooting a documentary, but there was no updates on it. Uh, but it is Facebook, so it must be true. Hi, I'm going to look that up. So anyways, that's a little uh, bit of the story on the donkey tree. Thanks, Derek, for having us on and letting us uh, tell you a little bit about our neck of the woods. Yeah, thank you so much. Nah, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Now, I'm not on Facebook all that much anymore, but I had to go and like the donkey tree. If you guys like spooky stuff, and, well, you're here, so you probably do, I highly recommend checking out Hillbilly Horror Stories. I spent some time with Jerry and Tracy at last year's Crypticon, and I can tell you, there's some good people. And speaking of meeting people, I'd love to meet you at the Oregon Bigfoot Festival and beyond, July 25th in Canby, Oregon. Cliff and Bobo from Finding Bigfoot, Heather Taddy, myself, and many more will be in attendance. OregonBigfootFestival.com will get you all the information that I did not. I truly hope to see you guys there. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And that creepy soundtrack you hear? Well, that's Co.Ag. Thank you so much for listening, and until next season.
Each week I play an extra story for those brave enough to stick around. Tonight is no exception. This evening's special story comes to us from Andrew in the state of Illinois. Hi, my name is Andrew. I'm from Genoa, Illinois, which is in the northern half of the state, just outside of Chicago. Here there is a legend about a haunted road called Blood Point Road. Legend says that a phantom car runs people off the road, and the ghost of an old lady runs in front of cars as they pass by. A while back, a friend and I were coming back from a Rockford Ice Hog hockey game, and we decided to take a detour on Blood Point Road. We drove up and down the road a few times, eventually stopping at the old cemetery. It was freezing out, so we had our heat on and the windows in the car up. We were taking pictures of some of the headstones when all of a sudden I saw my friend gasp for air. Something had spooked him. And that's when we began to notice cold spots within the car, especially in the back seat. This is the freakiest part. Only one of the side windows in the back seat had fogged up, and when it did, a handprint became very visible on the window. That was enough to send us packing. I love the show. Thanks for letting me share. Andrew. Well, thank you, Andrew. You might have fallen victim to a little prank I used to play as a kid. In certain conditions, you can actually write on a window with your hand, and then the next time it fogs up, that image that you wrote appears. It's almost like some sort of invisible ink. And I think what actually happens is the oil from your fingers makes the condensation collect differently, giving you contrast to see the image. I used to draw all kinds of things on my parents' cars. and When they'd fog up, you would see my name or who knows what. It was probably just drawings of He-Man and the Cincinnati Bengals. I was a weird kid. But anyway, I want to thank you, Andrew, for taking the time to share your story. And I want to thank you guys for the best season yet of Monsters Among Us. There is huge things to come. Stick around. I'll be back in a few weeks. Keep it spooky.